it's good to have my family here. So my wife's name is Janelle, there we are. And uh, we met in Guatemala years ago. And I often tell the Lord that if there's any blessing coming out of meetings like this, she deserves a better part of the half of it because sometimes I think that going and preaching is the easy part and her staying at home and doing everything is the hard part. So I really bless her and the family for doing that. My oldest two boys did not come along tonight. They might be here tomorrow evening. Um, my oldest daughter is Olivia. She's 13. And then Elisa is 11. And Ethan is 5 and Zachary is 2. And those are their names. And they're here somewhere, sitting among you. So that's the family. So the message tonight is a very familiar one. And uh, the fact that we've heard this message often doesn't necessarily mean we should preach it less. Because I never think we should take for granted that everyone among us has experienced these things and has walked into this reality of life. And I'd rather keep the message fresh, keep the the vision alive and keep the appreciation for what Christ has done real in our lives. And if it's, if it's simply a reminder to most of us what God has done, praise the Lord. If this is a, an evening where people can understand it for the first time, praise the Lord. But we're going to go over some very simple things tonight. And I do want to just bless you for the devotion of this evening. Uh, repent, be converted, so the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That was probably the essence and summary of what we're going to be sharing tonight. And this very basic way, I'd like to take you this evening to Romans. This, we're not going to comment on this, really. I just wanted to read this and gather what we get from the reading in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. I read this yesterday in my devotional and read it again today. We're going to skip Paul's parenthesis down about verses 13 through 17. And we'll just skip from verse 12 into 18 and we'll get the gist of the passage. But starting to read in verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so sin passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We'll jump down to verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. That was Adam, by the way. Even so, by the righteousness of one... That was Jesus Christ, by the way. The free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam again, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that this offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now if we got that, we can go home. That's the message. That's what we want for all of us to understand tonight. Now there's a few terms in there that, we, that jump out at us as we read it. Terms like, while we were yet sinners, and while we were the enemies of God, and saved from wrath, and reconciled to God, and atonement, and justification, and sin bringing death and righteousness bringing life 
eternal. Those are all things that are in that passage. So something huge is at stake here as we read it. There's something large here for humanity and what, what this means to us as human beings. That's one way to visualize what we're talking about tonight. The second way is a reminder that Jesus gave of the story in the Old Testament where the Israelites have been brought across uh, the Red Sea into the, into the desert and were beginning to complain and rebel against the God who led them and fed them and, and provided and cared for them all this time. And they were starting to rebel and complain against that. And so as a punishment, God allowed s- snakes to come into the camp. And every now and then people would be bit by a snake, maybe picking up firewood or maybe reaching into a cooking pot or maybe going to bed at night. Snakes were there and would bite people. And people were dying from it. And so the people went to Moses and said, Moses, find us a solution here. This is not working. And so Moses went to God, and God told him, you take bronze and make a serpent and lift it up on a stick and put it in the middle of the camp so that anyone that's been snake-bitten can go and look at that and find healing. And I can imagine the response of some that lived maybe on the outside edges of the camp, uh, snake bite, and they were dying, and they knew it, and they thought, it's so far, it's so complicated. I've got herbs, I've got remedies, I've got things I can try here at home in my tent. And let's just see how I get along. So he'd lay down and, and try this and that and die from it. There was no other cure. And other people who had heard about this remedy and thought, even though it hurts to walk and even though I'm going to need help, I'll, I'll try. And so they'd go to the middle of the camp and look at this serpent and healing would happen. I believe God did that for them. And uh, Jesus said that sin causes death spiritually, just like snake bites cause death physically. In fact, in, in John 3, he's referring to this passage when he speaks these, these famous and well-known words. Uh, we'll just read a couple of those verses there. John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God has not sent his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And Jesus said, it's not the brazen serpent anymore. It's not a snake bite anymore. It's me being lifted up as a solution for all the sins in all the world for men that look upon Jesus in faith for salvation. Jesus said, if you come to me for healing, you'll find it. If you don't believe in me, you're condemned already because I am the only solution for this problem. Now, Hebrews says that Jesus is like is the captain of our salvation. And uh, he tasted death for every man. He, he destroyed the work of the devil and, the, the, and, and sin. And if everybody that gets to heaven gets there behind Jesus... He is the way, the only way to the Father. He is the captain, the atonement, the high priest. And so this evening, I just want to share a simple message on a few elements that we see in this passage we read in in Romans. And as we go along, we just fill out this little diagram for a visual picture of what we're talking about. Try to keep our attention and keep this moving and understand what we're thinking about. So... To begin to understand salvation and the relationship we must have with God, we need to understand, first of all, the nature of that relationship. And Hebrews 4 says, in verse 13, 
Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, what do we have to do with God? What does God have to do with us? There are certain rights that God has over his creation as creator, as father, as provider, as sustainer of life, as uh, he owns it. And we're responsible to him because of that. Uh, we have to do with God, and he has to do with us because we owe him so much. And he has done so much on our behalf. Now, when scripture speaks of God and who he is, there's many characteristics. But one of the characteristics scripture uses to refer to God very often is holiness. Holiness to the Lord. The Lord is holy. These are words it uses. In Exodus 15, it says, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness? And even Moses, when he went to serve the Lord, they made a special golden plate. And on that golden plate, they engraved holiness to the Lord and put it upon a mitre. I guess it's something he wore on his head. Everywhere he went, he had this testimony and this representation that all that he did for the Lord was holiness to the Lord. That's who God is. That's how he wants us to serve him. And that's... We, uh, we understand God as being that. Now, when we call God holy, we're speaking of his righteousness, his justice, he is equitable, he is fair, he is, he is without fault, he is set apart, he is perfect, he is supreme, whatever other words you can add to understand holiness. And Isaiah saw him. Isaiah, back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, said, in the temple he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he saw four beings flying around the throne. And with two wings, they were covering their faces, and two wings, they were covering their feet. And flying with two wings and crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And it seems to me that if, if the angels in heaven that live in the very presence of God cover their face and their feet and cry out, Holy, holy, how would you and me respond if we would be found in God's presence? And... Isaiah felt it. He fell down and said, Woe is me, I'm undone. I've seen the king. You know, uh, back in his day, I guess, Isaiah was the, one of the most righteous men in Israel. He could have said, Well, I'm sure better than these folks and compared to the king and all the rest of his people. I'm probably one of God's favorites. But when it came to the presence of God, he did not think that. He just felt undoneness and uh, unworthiness. And we're not used to the standard of holiness that these men saw. It's hard to find things in our little human creation and the things that we make and do that, that compare with the perfection and the holiness of God. And um, You know, men have made some pretty amazing things. One, one thing they made was the Hubble telescope. And that was a mirror. I'm not sure how wide it was, number of feet wide concave to a perfect dish shape to catch the images from the stars and focus them on a certain point to be able to see an expanded image. And they took that mirror and with special technology ground it down and ground it down. They could only work on it at 2 to 4 o'clock in the morning because the truck traffic a mile away was enough to shake their instruments. They couldn't work accurately. And when they were finished, they said they could take that mirror, if they could expand it to the size of the Gulf of Mexico, it would have little ripples on it about a quarter of an inch high. 
That's how perfect they got it. Now, if you take the mirror you have at home in your bathroom and do that, you'd have waves about 90 feet high. That's the difference. And we look at it and say, wow, that is perfection. But that's not really perfection like God is perfect and holy. And, and it's hard for us to understand it. It's hard for us to uh, view it because we're so used to other things. But when we say God is holy, uh, we also mean that God's authority over earth is holy. And God's laws for men are holy and what he expects of men. And when God gave the law to Moses back in Exodus 20 and following, he was not simply giving good suggestions that would maybe curb the bad tendencies that humans have. Uh, afterthoughts, you know, it'd be good if they wouldn't kill each other. It'd be nice if they wouldn't lie to each other. He gave them as expressions of his own holy personality and his holy character. And when we violate the law of God, we're not just simply disobeying a rule. We're going against the very character of the God that gave it. And that's what makes it so serious. It's not just disobeying one of God's afterthoughts. We are going against his very nature. God said, thou shalt not kill. God owns life, and God gave life, and it's, it's up to him, not up to us. God said, do not commit adultery. And there's a reason for that. God is always faithful, and God wants humans to follow that characteristic. And God wants men and women to uh, reflect that. God says, don't bear false witness. In other words, don't tell a lie. It's because God is true. God would never be found in falsehood. And so he tells men this because this is something that he himself is, and he wants men to reflect that, that, uh, that standard. Now, as long as there is God, there will be a holy standard and, and a holy expectation. And the law that God gave is a reflection of his character. And God's law, we talked about it the first night, is, is in every place that his dominion goes. You know the reason that heaven is perfect while earth is not? It's because in heaven his authority is perfectly respected and on earth it's not. And that's what makes a huge difference in the outcome of our, of our lives. God is holy. God's law is holy. God's heaven is holy. And for heaven to remain heaven, sin cannot enter it because that would bring in the very thing that made earth what it is, that makes Hell what it is. God has a claim on men. And God's grievances with men are very real. When, when man rejects God and becomes his own ruler, his own moral authority, and makes his own way and challenges what God has established, God has a real grievance with that. Because he expected something of men and men didn't give it to him. And so... Men became sinful simply by not remaining in agreement with God. And when men did that, that's when they became out of fellowship. The relationship broke. And uh, we say that man is sinful. That's true. But every time one of us makes a choice to follow our will instead of God's will, it becomes very personal between me and God. Then it becomes, I am a sinner because uh, I have chosen to violate this standard. And... This is something very personal between God and me. So on this little diagram, we're going to put this up top. Um, and down here we'll just put sin and rebellion. Basically the same thing. 
Now, so here's God up here, and here's sin and rebellion down here, and uh, the sinful mind and the, the selfish attitude that man has. Now, I want us to think about a little bit what this looks like. When, when people choose to live a sinful life, what is it that gets man in this picture, and, and what does God think about that? And so, um, sin often doesn't look like sin. We don't think of it as sin until we see it in the light of what God, how God sees it. And until that happens, people tend to joke about it. People tend to take it lightly. People tend to pass it off as funny and uh, something that, you know, everybody does. But God doesn't look at it that way. God has said a couple of things. Here's one thing he said. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So who all is in this box? How many people in the world live there? Here it says, everybody has. Everyone has. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, maybe one way to look at sin is very simple. Uh, sin is everything in my life that heaven wouldn't smile at. Everything in my life that would be unacceptable up here. Everything in my life that violates the standard and the character of the God that gave me life and expects something from me back to him. Um, there's some interesting things about how this works. If you look at the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus 20, the first number of verses there, gives a list of ten things, and maybe more or less, depending on how you read it, and there's further things. It's not, that's not the only expression of God's will. But if you look at the ones that we consider the Ten Commandments, uh, the first nine of them cover nine things that a person may do with his hands, with his mouth, with his strength. In some way, he does it. And most of us are familiar with that concept because if we hurt somebody or kill somebody or steal something, everybody knows that's sin. We understand that. But if you get down to the Tenth Commandment, does somebody remember what the Tenth Commandment is? The last on the list. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. And so this is the only one of the ten that does not require some outward expression. Where do you covet? Where does coveting happen? Coveting happens on the inside. It doesn't happen on the outside. It's inside. And many people like to think that they can live with, without commission of sin and feel okay about themselves. They never lie, they never fornicate, they never steal, they never hurt people. But people often fail to realize that there are two sides to God's law. God's law is both moral and spiritual. And when I think of it that way, I'm thinking the, the moral side of God's law judges all the actions a man may commit. The spiritual side of God's law judges not only the action, but the heart that gave rise to that action the covetousness that gave rise to the stealing, the thoughts that gave rise to the whatever else. And Jesus, when he came, wanted to make that very clear. And if you go back to Matthew 5, there's a very clear teaching there about that. So here we are in Matthew 5, the first, so we'll read 21 and 22 as an example of this. Jesus said, Ye have heard that it was said of the, by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. 
But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now years ago, uh, up here in Gladys, I was a young guy, maybe eight, ten years old, I can't quite remember. Something very rare happened. Uh, a man took a paper and made a list of his enemies and then took a shotgun and got in his pickup truck and drove to the house of the first person on the list, walked up and knocked on the door. When the man came to the door, he shot and killed him right in his front door in front of his family. And then he drove away and took his own life. Uh, didn't go to the second person. He took his own life first. Now, according to the Ten Commandments, the man was guilty of murder. And the scribes would have called him guilty. The Pharisees would have called him guilty. We would call him guilty. The courts would call him guilty. But according to what Jesus said, this man was guilty a long time before he pulled the trigger. He was guilty before because in his anger he thought things and he planned things and he hated people. And his hatred turned to a burning intention to act. And then he went out and did it. And the law that Jesus is pointing out did not simply condemn the pulling of the trigger, but it also condemned the, the condition and attitude of the heart before anything was visible on the outside. The Old Testament law was, thou shalt not kill. And somewhere in the New Testament it says, I think James, speak not evil one of another brethren. Uh, different fruit, but the same root, same sin. And the law of God condemns both. We can continue here in verse 27 if we'd like. You've heard that it was said of them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now in our age that we live in, sexual sin is very varied and has many different expressions. Uh, we understand adultery and fornication and homosexuality and many other forms of, of immorality. And God is always grieved when men take his perfect plan for procreation and faithfulness and restraint and commitment to marriage and turn it into something else. And that something else can take many forms. There's many different ways of expressing that. But Jesus is saying here that the lust of the heart and intentions of the mind are in the same category as the sins that we see committed around us and hear about. When men feed their mind and are fascinated with the sins of other people, when there's wrong emotional attachments and there's wrong ways of thinking and viewing these things. See, the spiritual law is always at work, and it's always judging the attitude towards sin as well as the commission of sin, the, the person that commits it. And a person who can think himself very moral and very upright in his actions can behind that watch all the videos he wants in the screen of his mind and think himself okay because he hasn't done anything yet. But God's law judges that. It does not simply judge what a man does or what a man desires. See, holiness is not just self-restraint. Holiness is heart purity. And that's what God is after, and that's what he wants. And when God looks from here to here, he's not just seeing what men do. He's seeing what men want and what men think and how men deal with these things. Sin is a way of thinking that leads to a way of life. 
and a way of acting. Now, we're not going to take time to read it tonight because you know the story well. But the story of the prodigal son. One thing we can know about Jesus' parables is Jesus never wastes his characters. When he puts people into a story, they mean something. There's a, there's a symbolism there. So in the story of the uh, prodigal son, there is a father that to me represents our father in heaven. There are two sons, and both of them, to me, represent a different kind of sinner. Both of them had problems. And so the first son, the, sec the younger son, was the classic sinner. And in that story, he asked his father for the goods that he would have coming in the inheritance, and his father died. And so his father gave it to him. And as soon as he got it, he ran off, left home, uh, wasted his money, uh, spent it all with, I guess, everything you do in Las Vegas or everything you do in wherever, and wasted it, had nothing left. And then he went to the pig pen. And there in the pig pen, as he was feeding pigs to try to earn a little bit of a living, he began to think, my, the servants in my father's house live better than I'm living right here. He said, if I could just go home, and if I could hire myself to my dad, maybe he could let me live in the barn, maybe he'd give me a little place and enough food, and I can work for him for a living. And so he said, I will go, and I will uh, repent, and I will tell my father I'm sorry, and ask for that. And that's what he did. And his father received him home. But what I wanted to point out is this, that before sin is an action, sin is an attitude. And I have my, I'm pretty sure that before running away, this boy's heart was turned away. His heart was that way before he even went to his dad and asked for the, the wherewithal to go and do it. And behind every sinful life is a sinful way of thinking. Here's a few things that I think people think before they go off and do things like that. Number one. I can make myself happier than God can make me. By doing my thing, I can make myself happier than God could ever make me. Sin brings more pleasure than righteousness. Flesh is better than spirit. Rebellion is better than obedience. And that's the attitude that people get and have before they go and do things that are wrong. And if a person thinks like that, sooner or later, with, with, if that's not repented of, there will be actions that lead down this, this path. Let people counsel you. If people see this attitude in your life, listen to them. If they're coming to you for, to, to help you out, listen to them. Sin produces things we never dreamed could happen. When we start down a path like this, the practice of sin hardens the conscience. It destroys our faith. It affects our logic. Um, and I believe every time we sin on purpose, we're crossing a line with God that is harder to come back from. It's a, uh, in danger, we're in danger of deception. We're in danger of sometime going past the point of no return. Um, and it's possible to repent, but the more times you cross a line, the harder it gets. How many of you have climbed Crabtree Falls in the last few years? Crabtree Falls is, I guess, in northern Virginia. You've been there. I was there a long time ago. And uh, when we went up, back when I was a teenager, uh, we climbed it. And if you get to the top, some of you remember, there is a gradual slope out to the edge where the water runs across an open place in the rock so you've got sun on it. Whenever you have sun and water and rock, you get algae. And the water runs out there to the falls and it falls down, what, a couple hundred feet, 300 feet, I can't remember. It's a long falls. And uh, at the top they have a rope. 
and a sign on the rope, don't cross the rope. Well, as soon as we got there, the first thing we did is look things over and cross the rope. Because it's so easy. I mean, the rope is not going to keep you out. It's just a marker. And there's no greater slope on that side than this side, really, so we cross the rope and walk out there a little further. And, you know, the edge is right there. You can't quite see over it. You try to get a little closer to see it. And we came back. Praise the Lord, we came back. It's a very deceptive slope, and 30 people have been killed by falling off that waterfall. And the most recent person that was killed was a 31-year-old man that stepped across to take a picture and slipped and fell 300 feet and died. And they have a sign up there, and the sign says this, Danger, young men and women between 18 and 25 years old who are bright, intelligent, and educated fit the profile of the victims of Crabtree Falls. Most of them that do that are in that confident age of life. They can handle it, and they can come back, and they'll be okay. And a lot of them do, but some of them don't. And sin is a little bit like that. It looks so safe. It looks so controllable. It looks so easy to retreat from when we're ready to. And I really wish that every time a young person faced sin, there'd be a sign there that says, young people between 18 and 25 years old are the most likely victims of this thing. There's an impossible assumption that I can sin without consequence. Uh, God will see to it that people don't sin without consequence. God says he will not be mocked. And the younger son never dreamed to be in the pig pen. The woman in adultery never dreamed she'd be dragged out to the public square. But that happened. That was the younger brother's kind of sin. That's where he ended up. Now here's the older brother. The older brother stayed home. And the older brother, uh, you know, you don't have to go home, away from home and waste an inheritance to be a sinner. You can do that right at home, right on the farm. You can do that. Uh, and he never did what his younger brother did, but in his heart and in his attitudes, there was still something very wrong with his way of thinking. He was a very self-justifying person. He said, Dad, look at my works. I've never displeased you. I've done this and that. And he was angry. When he got back to the house and found out that the party was for the younger son, he was angry. And not angry because of the way sin had ruined his brother. He was angry because this young man got to go out and have fun and come back and get away with it. But the person that envies a sinner is exposing the evil in his own heart. We don't envy a sinner. Even if a person lived a life of sin and now is in the serving the Lord. Praise the Lord for that, but we still don't envy the sinner. Whatever a person experienced out there did not help him. We were better off without it. And we're here to uh, love righteousness, not to envy the sinner. And in this man's heart, he somehow believed what the sinner believes. Uh, sin is better than righteousness. There's some advantage in what he got to do. This young man was unhappy at home. He, he complained to his dad for that. It's interesting to me that the younger son came back trying to find a servant's position and was immediately welcomed as a son in his own home. And the older son came back thinking he was the favorite son and he had the attitude of a hired man. He didn't act like a son at all. And it's interesting to me that the story begins with the younger son outside the house and the older son inside 
and ends the other way around. The younger son is inside, and the older son is outside, refusing to come in. And what, what that speaks to me is simply that both of these young men needed to come into the house of their father the same attitude of repentance and humility, and the younger one did, and the older one didn't. Now I know it's just a parable Jesus told, but it does teach a good lesson. You see, true holiness is when my mind and my heart are in agreement with the attitudes of my father. Unless I have that, I'm not quite where I need to be. Now, looking at this, what attitude does God look at this picture with? We've just talked about what's going on here and the thought process and the outcomes and the actions. What's going on? What does God think? Well, God thinks this has this response. Anyone that's there, and uh, I guess we could say sin is the enemy of God, and God tends to be the enemy of the sinner. And so there's judgment there. There's an attitude of of impending uh, wrath and punishment upon people that insist upon violating his will and character and don't turn from that even when they have the opportunity to do it. But praise the Lord, that's not the only attitude. Here's another one. Jesus, God does not only look upon a sinful person with a look of judgment, but also one of invitation. I'm going to risk hanging that there. And that thought is going to make it real clatter. But I tried it earlier and it worked. So I'll hang it there for a little bit. God says this back in Isaiah 1.18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And what God does is comes to a person living in sin and rebellion with that kind of thought process and that kind of action in his life and says... This isn't good for either of us. This is not good for you and it's not good for me. And let's, it's much better to come together. And let's get this figured out. Let's find a way to walk together and be at peace. And the plan that God designed was the most shocking, the most sacrificial, the most loving thing he could ever do. And God himself would come as a man and God would allow the sins of the world to be laid upon his son and God would allow Jesus Christ to be crucified on the cross and would uh, allow sinful men to have their way with him. And in doing that, satisfy the demands of the law and conquer sin forever and provide a way for reconciliation. And so the whole story of Jesus is, is found here. That's what God came, sent Jesus here to do. Now I'd like to suggest tonight that every time you see a cross, there's three things you need to think. See, the cross is a language all of its own. It speaks to us. And it's forever standing there as a representation of something God wants us to know. And the first thing we can know is you look at this, we can say, is that what it took to take care of my sin? This provides for me an, a picture of what sin cost. Uh, it's a little bit that way in our justice system, I guess. It's supposed to be that the punishment should fit the crime. And you don't get crucified for a traffic violation. And you don't get a $50 fine for a murder. And so you look at the cross and know that maybe you've wondered like I have, why did God choose this death? Why not something easier? Why not lethal injection? Why not at least an electric chair? But this, 
And I think God chose that for this reason, to show humanity what it cost to take care of sin. Now the truth is, I could hang on that cross for a thousand years and never pay for my own sin. But Jesus doing it, because he was a sinless man, took care of that for me and for you. So it's a picture of man's sin. It's also a picture of God's righteousness. Uh, you know, when God forgives something, he doesn't quite forgive it like we do. If you owe me a few dollars and I just say, ah, just forget it. That's in a way, it's forgiveness, but that's not how God forgives. Uh, there's a verse in Proverbs 17, 15 that says, He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even both are an abomination to the Lord. So if a judge says to a guilty person, just go free, let's, let's forget about it. God said that's an abomination. If, God said, if, if a judge says to a, a righteous person, an innocent person, uh, life in prison, that's an equal abomination. Now, how could God, after inspiring this verse, look at my sin and say, man, just forget it. Just don't worry about it. Let's just let that go. He couldn't be true to this verse and say that. If a judge would do that, he would lose his job, and God can't do that kind of violence to his own character. There was a debate that I heard about between a Muslim and a Christian, and the Muslim said, it's because Allah is so, so loving. He can forgive sin without all this blood and stuff that you Christians believe in. And the Christian said, my God is so just, he could never do that. And that's why God provided this. So it could never be said that there, the balance was not taken care of. So God is just, and he could only forgive and stay just by doing this. And the third thing, this is ever a picture of God's love. We read that verse, for God so loved the world. Did you ever wonder if God loves you or not? I know people do. I've heard a person tell me one time, I have absolutely no evidence that God loves me. Well, go to the cross and look at it, and that's what it is. That's one of the expressions of God's love, and you will never be an object of God's indifference. You'll always be an object of God's intense love. And Romans 8.32 says this, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now when a child is young, he has no idea what I just said. He doesn't know that. But as he grows older, he begins to understand it. And he comes to the point of understanding he's got choices. He's got decisions to make. And we talk about this as the age of accountability, I guess, where a person comes to the place, and this happens among older people when they're seeing this for the first time. But when a person sees and understands the language and the call of the cross, a person like that will never be the same again. He can never be the same again because he's got choices to make. If he accepts it, it will change his life. If he rejects it, it will change his life. And it's a fork in the road that happens when a man understands what God meant when he told us about this and what God meant when he allowed Jesus to be crucified here. We have choices to make. If we reject that lordship, we will go deeper into a sinful life and things can only get worse from there. Now, Josh talked about in the devotion this evening what we must do when we want to come to the cross and accept its efficacy and accept its work in our life. We must repent. 
We must believe. We must confess. We must bring our sins before God and name them. We must believe that he is the only solution. And I guess um, we can call this step repentance and conversion. And we could preach a whole message right there. We had a very good devotional, so we won't. But that's what that step is. And if we're living here and hear the invitation of the Lord and come here, this is what we find. Now, how does God look at a person in this position uh, as we come to the cross and find a solution there? Well, instead of judgment, we have this one. We are accepted in Jesus Christ. It would, I tremble in my shoes to think of what it would be like to come before the Lord as a sinner. And having stored up to myself 70 years of sinful life, 70 years, like, it's like water filling a reservoir every day of sin, more sin, more sin, until the dam is breaking. And all this comes before the Lord with me, and what a, what a place to be. I would, we'd want to hide our face, we'd want to run away. But what a different thing to come to the Lord here. Here is the time, here is the place to deal with these things. And we can find acceptance there. We need to bring this to a close. Um, I wanted us to look at this yet. And I want us to understand that this is not the end goal of the Christian life. This is just the door in the beginning. We need to look at this this way. But... The new life in Jesus Christ that Romans describes, that Ezekiel 36 describes, and many other scriptures talk about the new heart, the new spirit, the new attitude, the new, um, the new way of thinking and living. When a person can come through that into those things, there's some beautiful passages there in the Old Testament and the New that talk about this beautiful transformation that happens when we let the Lord get a hold of our life and clean us up, and we can walk with him. Uh, and this changes. We go from judgment to acceptance. And when a person walks in newness of life, we have not just acceptance, we have, we have the approval of God in our life. We can look at God and say, Abba, Father. And know that there's an open heaven between me and him. Nothing left except freedom and joy and praise the Lord. And we're on the same page because my heart is now in agreement with his. And the things that I've done and, and said and has been taken care of. And we can walk in newness of life. This has been a short message because there's so much else we could talk about. I've cut much out. But I want to share this yet. The greatest condemnation in all of this is maybe not found in our natural human tendency and sin. Uh, the fact that I was a liar is serious, but it's not the most serious thing. The fact that I committed robbery or fornication or whatever, slander, is a serious thing, but it's perhaps not the most serious thing. Because Jesus said in John 3.19, this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light. And the greatest condemnation of all comes when we realize that we are not right with the Lord and we see the solution that God offers and we turn from that and say, 
I don't need it. I don't want it. It's not for me. I don't care. That is the greatest thing. That is the largest and the most grievous sin a man can commit against God. Because he did what he did to gain what he could. And I'm turning away from it as a worthless thing. Hebrews talks about trampling underfoot the, the blood of Christ and counting it as a worthless thing. And that is serious. The question is not, have we understood these things? The question is, have we accepted these things? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, breathe in our hearts tonight and be very clear with us because I believe tonight everyone here is either on one side or the other side of that cross. Either we are yet in sin, yet in darkness, or we are in the light and enjoying a free new life and walk with you. Not under your judgment and wrath, but under your approval and acceptance. Just make it clear to us where we stand tonight, Lord. We, we want you to do that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. don't want to give a long invitation tonight, but I do want to give the opportunity if someone here senses that this is the night, this is the time that I want to commit myself to this process, to leave this, come here, walk here, and be found in acceptance and approval of God and not under the wrath and the judgment of God. There's people here that know how to pray for you and help, help you find that peace. Is there a song we could sing?